All right. And um, we should be live. Why do I hear echo? Do you hear an echo? Uh, I do not. Okay. Well, we have four viewers currently watching the stream. Thanks to everyone who's tuning in. We'll wait a few minutes to give some people some time to log on. If you are just hanging out, send us a shout out in the comments where you are, where you're watching from. Um, in the meantime, how are you doing, Justin? I'm doing well. How about yourself, Lashanti? I'm doing great on this cold British night. <laughs> okay, you got a little bit of an echo going on now. I do. I think I'm going to... Can you hear me now? What about now? There we go. All right. We are live and direct. So again, we have people shouting out in the comments. Hello, Pachancia. Hello, Nikki, who is also with my dad. Hello, Winston. And yes, the audio is perfect. Thank you for everyone who's tuning in. We're at eight viewers. And I think it's about prime time. We can start. So once again, everyone, welcome to season two, episode three of Siren Sundays. I'm Lashanti, your host. And today I have with me Justin Lewis, who I'm going to let introduce himself. So tell the people who you are, what your background is, and what you do at Bonefish Tarpon Trust. Hi, everybody. Um, Justin Lewis here. I am from Freeport, Grand Bahama. Uh, I work for Bonefish Tarpon Trust as their Bahamas Initiative Manager. And basically what that means is I do everything. <laughs> I'm in charge of the entire Bahamas for Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Um, for you, those of you who aren't familiar with Bonefish Tarpon Trust, uh, we are a nonprofit conservation science-based organization that focuses on the conservation of bonefish tarpon permit and most importantly, their habitats. Uh, quick background on me. Um, grew up in Grand Bahama my whole life, uh, went up to Canada for schooling, did my undergrad there at St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia, got a bachelor's in um, aquatic resources, and then went out to the UK at the University of Nor York, sorry, York, in Northern <laughs> England to get my master's of science in marine environmental management. Um, I'm a water baby, I'm a lifelong fisherman, grew up on the water and just made sure I was, I could do whatever I could to get back home to basically have the job that I have now. That is lovely. And I can see we have some viewers that are not from the Bahamas and a lot of people who are on have met me before and assume that the Bahamas is Nassau or New Providence. So it's great for you to tell them that you are from Grand Bahama, which is a completely different island and has a whole set of people on there. But tell me a bit about Bonefish Tarpon Trust. Like, what do they, um, what do they do? What are they for? All that good stuff. So Bonefish Tarpon Trust, we're what? How old are we now? Uh, we're like 24 years old, 23, 24 years old now. Um, and so the history of it was there was a group of concerned anglers in the Florida Keys that got together and formed Bonefish Tarpon Unlimited because they noticed a significant significant decline in the bonefish population in the Keys. Um, there was about a 90% decline in the bonefish population in the Keys, and they decided that something needed to be done. And then from that grassroots uh, Bonefish Tarpon Unlimited, it formed we like restructured into Bonefish Tarpon Trust, and we it's just grown significantly. Um, both in the amount of support that we get, but most importantly, the the amount of science that we've learned about bonefish, tarpon, permit in their habitats over the last 24 years, 23, 24 years. That's exciting. Most of that, sorry, oh. go ahead. No, 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 most of that what? Definitely keep talking. I'd say, say, so for the bonefish, most of that data that we've collected since there's there was very few bonefish in the Keys have come out of the Bahamas, hmm. especially over the last 
decade we've there was like a decade ago there was nothing known about bonefish but now we we are very close well not very close we're still learning we've learned an astronomically a amount more than what we used to know before about bonefish i'm sure we're gonna be talking more about that later yeah definitely and that's what i was actually about to start doing so clearly given the name of the organization bonefish is the first one that pops out and a lot of people you know assume well okay bonefish are fish why are they called bonefish so bonefish are a shallow water flat species flats is the habitat the environment that they they hang out in flats is defined as shallow water ranging from zero to six feet in depth with a long shallow gradient so it's not your normal basically high grade beach it's very long shallow flat long shallow shallow area um and they're 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 super bony fish as in they don't have more bones than other species of fish is that their bones are a lot smaller, which gives them larger muscle mass um, and they're very powerful. So that's why a lot of people come down to the Bahamas to come and target them. So for their size, so you take a three pound bonefish that's this size and it will fight like a fish that's twice or three times its size. And so historically, bonefish used to be the staple of the Bahamian diet because um, it was easy, they're in shallow water, easy access, you could throw a hand line out and catch them or people would net them. And it was just a good source of protein. And so when people would eat them, they always complain about the bones. So how small their bones are. So they're bony, they're bony fish, so they call bonefish. <laughs> I don't know why I imagined it would have been, I guess, almost the opposite, that they had big bones and you know, like they were primarily bone, but you're saying the bones are very thin. So what um well, I actually didn't know that we ate them because I was definitely gonna ask that in this is do people eat them? Do people still eat them today, or is that something that's of the days of old? So since since we started getting food imports in from the U.S., the amount of bonefish that's consumed has decreased significantly. It's more of like if someone does it, it's like a it's like a it's a special thing and it's very rare for it to happen. It's mostly the old people on the out islands that will do it. No one will actively really go out and catch bonefish. But if someone just like especially from the shore and catches a bonefish, they're, they're probably going to keep it more than likely. Definitely. So can you tell me a bit about maybe the life? cycle of the bonefish are they do they spawn like do they get into big schools like what do bonefish do <laughs> so bonefish are a very interesting fish for being an inshore species um i guess i'll start uh let me start with the adult um so an adult bonefish in the bahamas basically ranges from average sizes three to five pounds regularly get fish way over five pounds um and they hang out on the flats um, and they primarily feed on um, invertebrates, uh, specifically uh, crabs and shrimps, but actually the majority of their diet is made up of uh, clams and mussels. I didn't know that. I don't know why I imagine it's smaller fish. Uh, no, there's no, if you look at a bonefish, I'll, I'll pull up a picture in a bit. Um, their mouth, they have a subterminal mouth. It's located underneath their head, so they're bottom feeders. And most of the prey that's that's found inshore on the flats is going to be these invertebrates, the the mollusks, um, sorry, the the mussels, the clams, the shrimps, the crabs, whatnot. Uh, they also eat worms, and some small, larger bonefish uh, will even eat small fish like small shad or small minnows and whatnot. Oh wow! So I don't know why, as you're talking about bonefish, for some reason salmon, you know, they're kind of popping in my head, which is probably like, why is that happening, right? But so when it's time for bonefish to 
school? Because I know they run in schools. Is that only something that they do once in a while? Is that seasonal? Is that only for mating? Like, why do they make this journey in school together? So it, hi, it's, we haven't really done it when they're just on the flats. We have, we don't really know why they school other than it's for protection from predators, but it also varies by season, by habitat type and by Island. Um, so like there are areas where I only find singles and doubles, but they're larger fish. Hmm. So from what from what we've seen from our observations, we haven't actually done scientific work on it, but just from observations right. and observations from guides, you generally find larger fish in singles or doubles or or very small groups. Whereas once you get to the smaller fish, like your average size is your three to five pounds, your two pounders, you generally find them in in larger schools. And then you but you then you'll have areas that have nothing but giant schools. Like for example, in the bear, I'm gonna use the Barry Islands as an example that is primarily a, like there's just large schools of fish down there and you will find areas where there are singles and doubles or smaller groups of larger fish but you'll find mostly large schools of fish down there and it varies between the island and the habitat in the season too so like in the summertime in grand bahama i find more larger schools of fish whereas in the winter time you still find large schools of fish but you also start seeing more uh more singles doubles, smaller groups of larger fish and that's probably the because of the spawning season. Right. And so I know you mentioned the habitat of the flats. Um, you defined it earlier. Can you quickly define it again? Yeah. So the flats is a shallow water environment that ranges in average from zero to six feet in depth and is characterized by a long, shallow gradient. And it's, it's made up of a habitat mosaic um, of sand flats, uh, mangroves, uh, uh, seagrass flats, uh, mangrove channels, uh, mangrove creeks uh blue holes uh algal plains so you get it's it's super complex habitat and it's not just great for bonefish but it's great for a variety of other commercially and ecologically important species right so one of the things that i knew about bonefish which i, I wouldn't say this is their only purpose because i always think back to um I'm sure you know Dr. Ethan Freed. Whenever people ask him about plants, it's always, oh, can I eat this? So I always try to think of animals and all the different species for more than just their human use. But for the Bahamas, you know, the fly fishing industry is definitely big. And I only learned about it when I got into conservation. So can you talk a bit about how the fly fishing industry kind of impacts island economies? Yeah, so we did a study back in 2010, basically in the height of the recession, and found that the flats fishing industry in the Bahamas brings in about $141 million. And that's impacting primarily the out islands. So for, in the, for the, it's probably the smallest of the tourism sector and it's within like that boutique sector of tourism. That's a lot of money for these out islands. Like for example, in Andrus, during the same study, we found that 80% of tourism, of income from tourists came in through the bone fishing lodges or from just from just from people coming into flats fish actually. Um, and then we just redid that study in 2018. And we found that 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 economic impact increased to 169 million annually. So okay. it's, it's, it's a lot of money that's brought in. And it's not just from people going to the lodges, just as much as coming in from people who just come in on their own. A lot of people who come in, they'll come in with their families and they'll fish for, they'll go off and like fish in the afternoon, fish in the morning, then hang out with the family. 
or they'll take a day or two to fish on their own or their hired guide for a day or whatnot. So it's not just for the lodges, it's also for individual anglers coming down the fish. And so how is fly fishing done? I know every time I see you, I always say, Justin, all I ever see you do on your Instagram is you're always fly fishing. I don't even know how to do this. How does one fly fish? Like, and I know it's catch and release, right? So can we just kind of talk about those two things? How do you fly fish and how is this catch and release done? So, well, let me make one thing clear. Bone fishing is not just fly. You can't just, you don't have to just fly fish for bone fish. You can spin fish for bone fish. You can catch them with a hand line. Spin <laughs> um, fish? Like spinning fishing. So, using a, a spinning rod, it's probably, it's, it's like the more traditional one that you'll see, like people standing from a rock holding a rod. That's a spinning rod. Oh, okay. Um, I wish I could pull up a picture, but. Um, so, a lot of the people who come down, I'd say it's probably about 50% of the people that come down are spin fishermen. And then the other 50% are, are fly fishing that come down to the Bahamas. Hmm. Um, but fly fishing is put up on a pedestal for, for bonefish just because it's a lot, it's, it's a bit more difficult because there's more, there's more technique needed, um, to fly fish just because it's <laughs> trying to describe it over a stream. <laughs> so basically the main difference is, okay, so for a spinning rod, you're using, you have a stiffer rod, shorter rod light very very light line and you're using the weight of whatever your bait is whether it's it's just the hook with a piece of conch on it, a piece of shrimp on it or you have a jig head or you have or you have just a, a feather on it that's what's taking your line out there's a little bit of flex in the rod but it's mostly the weight of the lure that's taking your line out whereas with a fly rod it's a lot longer averages nine feet in length and it has more a lot more flex to it and the line is heavier not necessarily heavier but it's a lot thicker so you can get a lot more, you can build up momentum in it. So when you're coming, when you're casting with your fly rod, when you're coming back and you're going forward, you're causing a flex in the rod and that's causing momentum to build up in your line. And that's what, that's what allows you to get your fly out here. And your fly is usually very, very small and very, very light. Yeah, I already can see that whether it be next season or somewhere in the future, we have to do a part two of this episode where we're actually on the flats and you're showing me how to do this fishing because it's like <laughs> technique if you literally can't do fly fishing on the fly oh no i mean i catch that <laughs> but nonetheless <laughs> nonetheless um is it easy for um bahamians or anyone to get into fly fishing i know there is a fly fishing association in the bahamas um but if someone wanted to get into fly fishing how would they how would they do that um, so it's actually, it's not as hard as people think. Um, all you have to do is just buy a rod, buy a rod and some, a reel and some line. And the easiest thing to do is watch, get, get a rod, get like a decent rod. That's like, you can buy a whole outfit rod, reel line for like $300 and that will do the job. Um, and that will last you for years. Um, okay. You can get, you can even find ones that are cheaper than that, to be honest. But I usually tell people get around that range because you don't want to have like a crappy rod. Um, yeah. But not a lot but, of fly fishing is done in New Providence, right? I feel like if there there's is. There's a, a few guys that, so in the Bahamas in general, it's not a common thing to do. Um, it's still, I still get weird looks when I go out and fish in public. Um, 
but yeah, it's actually because actually a bunch of my friends who who know, see me do it have have approached me recently and just like, yeah, I want to get into this. And I've been doing a few lessons here and there, but it's not that hard to get into. It. It's just taking the, it's just putting the, the the initial investment in, and that's actually for any. If you want to get into any type of fishing, you have to put that initial investment in, which doesn't need to be that much. Right. And just get out, just get out on the water, watch a few YouTube videos, try to get the basics down, and just it's all about practice. I didn't have anybody to teach me. I figured it out on my own just by reading books and watching videos and you just, you just figure it out over time. What I would like to do in the future, I've always wanted to do is do like uh, for Bahamians, especially to get more people into the sport is to do like a workshop. So I don't know, maybe we'll, that'll work out one day. <laughs> definitely. That would definitely be something that I think would be nice. I think Bahamians should kind of get away from the whole idea of, the one job that you can get is to get into the hotel industry. You know, there are lots of different things that we can do that require some skill and, and you can make yourself, uh, you know, a very high commodity in this niche market. But I know that you, um, no, not you. I had mentioned the catch and release concept. Can you explain to Bahamians how bone fishing is sustainable because of this? Yeah. So um, the, basically the flash fishing industry, um is especially for bonefish is primarily a catch and release fishery um and the important is and by it being catch and release that makes it a sustainable renewable resource however we have done research that's shown that that is very dependent on how you handle the fish so we push very heavily best handling practices because just because you release a fish and let it swim off and, sw and you see it swim off doesn't necessarily mean it's going to survive. It very, it, it very much depends on how you handle those fish. So we've come up with a set of best handling practices, which you can, if you look up on the Bonefish Tarpon Trust website, you can find that out. And that not only applies to just bonefish, but any fish you plan on releasing, you can apply those to those fish. Cause you want to be able, if you're going to release those fish, what's the point of letting them go? If you're going to, if they're just, if you know that if you're just, if you mishandle those fish and they're going to die. Right. Um, so we want these fish to survive. We want to be able to reproduce so we can have more fish in the future for all of us to catch and release and go after and make and mess. And when it comes to the industry, be able to make money from sustainably. Because I think that is a real fear. If you have a lot of people who could even potentially be watching this thinking, oh, OK, I'm going to go and try and do this. And then you have this mass like issue with people attempting to catch and release, but they're obviously not doing the proper technique. So I definitely will probably shoot that in the comments. Um, the link to you guys website but also um one of the things that also we like to address is this whole idea of climate change well, not idea this actuality of climate change do you see any effects happening already in regards to climate change and bonefish migrations or habits um not directly because we haven't really looked into that i know a couple people who have looked into it and i just don't remember the the exact data on it but of the few things i do remember was that from that study that was done in Cape Eleuthera, was that with rising um, rising climate temperature, especially water temps in the summertime, fish are not gonna have a lot of time to feed, especially on the lower tides. So that's gonna push them into deeper water. So they like to come into the shallow water to feed, especially on an incoming tide, but if that water is super hot, they're not gonna go in there because bonefish are very sensitive to water temperatures. Right. And so, and while we're on the topic of you know, them predating, what actually eats the bonefish? Like, what are their top predators? So their top predators are barracuda, lemon sharks, ospreys, and bottlenose dolphins, and then ultimately us. <laughs> I actually am really surprised to hear you say barracuda. What the heck? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
big time. And is that when they're adults or is that when the bonefish are probably younger and smaller? Both. Because as you say, I don't ever see big barracudas in the flats area. Like do, is this when bonefish maybe go into deeper water? Is that when that happens? What flats areas have you been to? <laughs> yeah, they're not the same ones as you. I promise you anytime I'm in flats and mangroves, I always feel assured because I'm a little wary of barracudas that I will only see small barracudas. Like I rarely see ones that I think are big enough. Then again, this is coming from someone who has been very unfortunate in never seeing a bonefish in real life. So oh, yeah. I about that. <laughs> exactly. I feel like this the the bonefish is almost this like illustrious fish that I can't ever seem to catch. Like and I've been to Bonefish Park, Bonefish Pond National Park. Let me get the name right because He's Eric's watching. I've never seen him. And I've seen pictures recently of um I know Elijah Sands, he posted a picture of a bonefish that he saw there. And I'm like, I just thought you guys named it after it for fun. Like I've never seen bonefish there. And so is it because I'm just out of luck or is it because it's a seasonal thing for the one in New Providence? So because I don't know, have you ever walked in the back of Bonefish Pond? Once I have. Okay. <laughs> and if you're walking, you more than likely spook the fish. The, you, the fish knew you were coming along before because you're probably just trudging through and they'll they'll just right. spook off. You wouldn't even know that they were there. But there, there's not a lot back there because as you know, people go in there and they'll catch and keep fish and whatnot. But they're back there, and there's some big ones back there. Um, yeah, but on the flats, that's one of the that's that's uh, that's also another big target species on the flats for flats fishermen. It's just like it's a it's a fun species to catch as barracuda. They're they're all over the flats. I actually I was fishing with a friend of mine who saw like a fifty pounder that was that was like five feet long on the in like a foot of water. Where in New Providence? They're one of the biggest barracuda I've ever seen. It was huge. See, and it was coming. <laughs> Listen. They don't mess with you. They're just big babies. You look at you, if you just stare at them, they'll just turn around and swim off. Let me tell you something. No. And I know <laughs> I was one time diving. This is when I went on up to Kisal. I remember Candace from, I think she's a CEI still. She had told me, she's like, don't worry. If you see a barracuda, just swim at them. And I'm like, what is this? Playing chicken with a barracuda? And I just, I was like, no, nah, I'm good. I will just, you know, keep back from them but yeah I, I don't know I think it's interesting that people who are actually seeing them often are like no nah, they're fine you can just nope I'm afraid of them I don't well let me not say afraid I'm very cautious of barracuda more so than sharks actually so I feel like barracuda are a bit more unpredictable but nonetheless we're not here to talk about barracuda <laughs> so Definitely something I'm also interested in. I know, like you said earlier, BTT does a lot of conservation work. And I know you mentioned that you guys are doing restoration work as well. Um, do you want to talk a bit about things that you guys do for conservation of bonefish, their habitats, and some of the restoration work that you guys have been doing? Oh, boy, where to start? Okay, so I guess I'll just start from beginning. the beginning. So um, our, our basically our cornerstone research program is our tag recapture program. And that's using primarily dark tags, but we also use acoustic telemetry uh, to track these fish. So basically what we do is we take these little spaghetti, these plastic spaghetti dart tags that have their own code on them and there's contact information. Oh, on them. Share your screen at all. You mentioned earlier that you had maybe a PowerPoint. Um, let me see if I have a PowerPoint, <laughs> sorry. No, no, no worries. I just know you mentioned it earlier before the show. I didn't want to 
rob you of your beautiful PowerPoint. Oh, you're fine. Um, where's the picture of the tag fish? Oh, it's on the other. It's on the other one. Anyway, um, yeah. So basically, what we do is we uh, insert this tag into next to their dorsal fin, and we go and we try to get it through these bony structures called pterygophores that go from the dorsal fin down into the body of the fish. It just helps anchor the tag. Yeah. Um, and we primarily do this by we catch the fish using large soft mesh, small mesh seine nets. And it's just super effective. You catch a bunch of fish at one time, tag as many as you can and release them at the same spot where they were caught. And we also had um, anglers do, anglers get involved as well, but mostly the anglers were getting involved by uh, reporting recaptures. So they, they were played a really, really important part in us starting to figure out bonefish movements. So from that study, what we were able to figure out is that bonefish have extremely small home ranges. Their their home bodies. They didn't. They 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 hung out in a one, sorry, in one square mile primarily. They didn't really move other than to go to spawn. Oh wow! Do we have a lot of spawning sites? Yeah. So we've identified eight so far, and we are in the process of hopefully identifying some more this coming this coming spawning season. So spawning season for bonefish. April, uh, primarily during the full and new moon phases. And what they do is, and this is going back to the life cycle. So they're on the flats, they're doing their thing, they're feeding, just hanging out. Uh, people like me trying to catch them. <laughs> um, and then once, once the spawning season hits, um, depending on the island, each island has their peak times um, during the full and new moon, they'll all head to a spawning site, which is, it's the same site all the time. It doesn't change. Uh, these fish will head there and the will be these will be called pre-spawning aggregation sites and they are characterized by being a semi-enclosed bay that's easy access to the flats but also easy access to deep water drop-off and these bays are a little bit deeper water they range anywhere from basically six to 20 feet deep and it's just a nice area for them to just chill and hang out and you can have anywhere from a thousand up to ten thousand fish in this big big pre-spawn aggregation school. It basically looks like a giant bait ball of bonefish. Um, and so during the day, um, they'll just hang out, just swimming around in the ball. To set, they become more active. Um, you'll see ventral nudging, meaning you'll see fish rubbing each other, like gumming up and rubbing each other's bellies. What we think that is, is the males rubbing the females Bellies trying to stimulate them to get the eggs eggs moving, um, and then you also see them porpoising in these schools, and they start to head offshore. Oh boy, is that is that my connection or is that yours? I don't even know. Stand by. It's me. Or, well, um, well, I think we're still live. Anyone out there? Can you hear me? If you can, um, shoot something in the comments so I know that we are still alive and active. I think we may be facing some technical difficulties. I lost Justin. 
Um, so hopefully you'll hop back on. But thank you all for who are hanging in there. We're like, what would a season be on Siren Sundays if we didn't have technical difficulties? Um, it is the way of the world. But yeah. in the meantime, if there are any questions about bonefish thus far, I know I see um, they asked. There was a question about bonefish being only game, not food. Um, for those who are tuning in, oh, there Justin is. For those who were tuning in earlier, it used to be a primary source of food, but just is back. Okay, did I did you hear any of that that I just talked about? I heard nudging and rubbing the females to get the eggs going, and then okay, that's uh, where it stops. Yes, that's for okay. me where it stopped, but we can just pick up from there. Okay, I can pick up from there. Okay, cool. Sorry, <laughs> everybody. Um, yeah, um, and then. Um, then what they'll do as they're heading offshore while they're doing that, they'll also be porpoising, jumping out of the water. And we believe that's them filling their air bladders in preparation to go in the deep water. Um, so we've actually tracked them as a school in the thousands, just heading offshore and they'll go off the drop off and the drop off is, they probably drop, the average drop off in the Bahamas is probably around 100, 150 feet right. and it drops off to about 6,000 feet. Um, we've tracked them going off the drop-off down to about 450 feet deep. Come again? Yeah. So for a shallow water fish that usually hangs out in one foot of water going down to 450 feet, <laughs> that's pretty cool. That That is really cool. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm listening. <laughs> yeah. And so once they, and then once they're, and this is, this is pitch black at this time, um, we're tracking them. Then once they're at that depth, then they'll make these these very sharp um, vertical movements towards the surface. And we believe that's when spawning occurs. So there's the process called broadcast spawning, similar to what groupers and snappers would do. You have this big aggregation of fish and you have the female shoot up, releasing her eggs. And as she's releasing her eggs, she's followed by multiple males who releases their sperm. And then the eggs are fertilized almost immediately and then taken off by the, taken out by the currents into the abyss. And then after about on average 52 days, and no, sorry, wait, let me go back for a second. After a day or two, the eggs will hatch into a larval bonefish, what we call leptocephalus. So I will try show you a picture. Yeah, of yeah. What one will look like. Let's see. Oh no. What's wrong? I'm just trying <laughs> to make sure I can get it. That's like 450 feet. Holy crap. Can you see my, can you see the PowerPoint screen? Uh, no, I don't see it. Did you? Okay. Hmm. Hold on, let's try this again. I have no share. What screen can you see? I can just see you. Um, I don't I'll see. see. You can, if you want to send it to me, but. Once you click share screen, it should be there. Okay. You actually see my screen now? I can see you. I can't, like, are you, did you click share screen in the web browser? Yes, like I did. Yeah, no, I don't. Mm. It's not mm. All right, don't worry about it. Not a big deal. I can open it up while you're talking. Pardon me? If you want to, like, quickly email it to me, you can. I um, try. Well, basically what it is, is um, it looks like a little glass eel. 
Um, so what? Like, uh, <laughs> like think of a clear, like think of a clear noodle. Uh, you're making me want to Google this now so I can share my screen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will try send this to you. Um, but basically, they look like a clear noodle. Um, they're in the so bonefish are in the in the family of yeah family elopiforms, and so they're in the same family as tarpon, mm -hmm. um, tarpon and other eels. Um, so like the American eel, um, they have they have the same um, life history stage. Like eel eels, like yeah, like eel eels. So like your moray eels, your American eels, tarpon, ladyfish, oh. bonefish, all have the same life history stage of leptocephalus. We actually have a quick spawning question from my dad. <laughs> when the bonefish spawn, are they attacked by sharks, like when groupers are spawning? Yes, they are. Uh, we have actively seen sharks um, and barracudas. Actually, the difference, all right, I've seen bottlenose dolphins, I've seen groupers, I've seen Kibera snapper, I've seen different species of shark, and I'm sure once they get off the drop-off, marlins, wahoo, swordfish are going after them as well. Oh, wow. And other larger sharks. So a lot of fish should go after them. But what we one of the things we noticed, especially um, at one of the spawning sites in Abaco, was that it's once they get to a critical mass, um, you don't see as much active predation occurring. You'll see the predators around, but you won't see active predation. Um, whereas other times when we'll see like 500 to a thousand fish, all you see is sharks running through the school, barracudas running through school, just absolutely annihilating them. But once they get like above a thousand fish, you don't mm -hmm. see that as often just because safety in numbers. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And so, okay. So the leptocephalus, this little glass eel, this little clear noodle like, like thing, um, hangs out. In, uh, in the open ocean being carried by the currents for an average of 52 days. And after 52 days, if they're lucky, they'll make their way inshore to suitable habitat, which is basically shallow backwater areas. And what they'll do is they look nothing like a bonefish at this point. Um, and they'll, if they find the right habitat, they'll metamorphose into a juvenile bonefish. And that occurs over probably about the course of a week. And it's pretty cool to see them go from like this glass eel, like this clear noodle like thing to a baby bonefish. And I've seen it where it's, they're like half lepicephalus, half baby bonefish. So, okay. And I don't know if I missed it. So how are you following these little glass eels to see this? Like, or has this been researched like in labs? So we're not actually following them. It's more, we like, we've had, we work with people in Florida where they'll catch them offshore in light traps or, uh, or in plankton trawls. Um, we've also caught them as they're coming, like we'll be pulling nets for juvenile bonefish and we have small enough mesh that we actually catch the leptocephalus as they're coming inshore. Um, so we've, I've actually in multiple sand hulls caught everything from a full-blown leptocephalus to a full, and everything in between to a full-blown baby bonefish. Oh, that is crazy. Yeah. And you can, oh. if, you're, if you're not looking, you won't spot them. And then also we'll put, in certain areas, we'll put light traps out and we'll catch them that way as well. So how does the concept of this light trap work? Is it just they're drawn to the light? Yeah, they're drawn to the light. Like a lot of planktonic species are drawn to light. Okay. And yeah. is that how they find the flats to get there? Or like, I don't... No, it's not how they find it. It's just, it's just a thing. I, I forget what the... I, I know there's a term for it. I just don't remember what it is. Um, no but I, for them being drawn to the flats, it's a, I, it's, it's a combination of, of it's luck and the currents. 
mm. mostly. And so if they're lucky enough to get pulled, get sucked in by certain currents and they can, they can smell the flats. They'll, they can, they can more control their, they can't really swim well, but they can control their vert where they are in the water column. Right. And they'll try their best to make their way inshore. And they're usually brought in by currents because you're usually in these areas where there's like tidal creeks or there's channels and whatnot where you, where you see higher concentrations of them. Right. Were you still um, going to send me the slides or did we give up on that? No worries. While you do that, I do have an anonymous question coming in. Um, it's going to take us a little bit back um, while we wait for you to get the slides to move forward. But this watcher or viewer, watcher, whoa, this viewer asks, curious, how bonefish as a food source versus a species in conservation compares to other species like snapper and grouper? What are your thoughts on if we wanted to switch from putting taking pressure off of grouper by switching it to well grouper and snapper and switching to people maybe eating bonefish again? Um, I would say let's not do that <laughs> because <laughs> because look at what's happening with grouper and snapper. Yeah. Um. So. Um. Yeah. Um, because no, because they're there, they are one for one, they're not really good eating fish. Other people, people would argue that. And I always ask people these old, especially the old people, like, how do you cook them? It was like, oh, I baked them with coconut. I was like, oh, that's why they taste good. Cause you're having coconut. <laughs> well, have you actually, I don't even know if you can say, are you allowed to say you, you taste bonefish before? I have never eaten a bonefish and I, I never will. Don't eat my subject. <laughs> Noted. Definitely. But I guess. No, that's but, uh, no but like everything. So. Bonefish, um, they are, they should, and they should be considered uh, a sport, a catch and release sport fish, because the amount of money that it brings in for it being a sustainable, renewable resource is is insane compared to us fishing a grouper spawning aggregation and us not having grouper anymore. <laughs> so they're, very, you know, so, I know I've, to really answer her question, they're, the alternative really is, is that fisheries regulations need to be significantly reformed so that we don't have to worry about not ha not having grouper or snapper anymore. I, you know, this is such a touchy topic. I think, like I said, I feel like you just said something so controversial and I don't want to dive into it because you know there are so many conflicts of interest when it comes to things like this in conservation everyone feels like their species is more important how dare we try to prioritize one over the other and you know i really think it's it's obviously we're on a case by case but yes i think fisheries regulations need to be stricter but i also think that just as a country we need to really consider as people, besides these fishery regulations, what are the proper ways to do things? I know a lot of Bahamians know, and, and I can be, I guess, a witness to this. They know when grouper season is, they know when we're not supposed to be catching and buying it. And I will never forget one December, when I went to go buy some fish from the dock, there were fishermen selling Nassau grouper. And people were buying them, clearly, because why would he be catching it if people weren't buying it? So it's this vicious cycle of, you know, people, the public pushing government, government pushing the people, like it's, it's, it's you know, something's got to give. And I think as a collective, anyone who's out there listening, please follow the seasons for all the fish and fishery species that we have seasons for. That's a way to help with their populations. And I think I will say that is that for that. And we will move back to bonefish. 
Oh, let me just say, I'm not. I'm not saying bonefish are more important than grouper snap. Definitely mm -hmm. not, because I love catching. I love grouper and snapper as well. But it's just, I don't know. We just have to follow follow the follow the current regulations. And as a con more importantly, as a consumer, it's it's we get on the fishermen a lot. But I also understand where the fishermen are coming from. I've commercial fished as well. Um, yeah. And then also, I would, yeah, more work needs to be done with the fishermen, but. It really comes down to consumer because you all buying the fish, they can keep catching them. Exactly. Supply and demand. Yeah. And I agree with you. I, I can't knock a fisherman who's trying to make ends meet by supplying the fish that everybody wants. So it's again, it's it's you know, again, that vicious cycle where people need to really just think about the consequences of their actions and their interest. But um, yeah, uh, so thanks for that question, viewer. What's I don't snapper doesn't have a season. We have a no, I don't think I don't think snapper has a season. I think that's something that's being debated. Um do you have I don't think No, there's no there's no season on snapper. The only thing for uh for snapper as far as it just groupers. I know for groupers it has to be a minimum of three pounds to keep it. I forget if it's the same for snapper. I'd have to look back at the regulations. But other than that, there's no there's no protections for snapper and the only grouper there are protections for is the Nassau grouper, unfortunately. Right. And I do think you're not supposed to be netting the schools as well, which I think people still do when it comes to snapper schools. Uh, I don't think that rule has ever has been changed, but it is a rule that needs to be changed because there's a significant decline in snappers throughout the palms, especially the lane snapper. Anyway, we're going off topic now. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Let's, let's go back. Uh, did you send this stuff? I don't think. Ah, oh, damn it. Because I keep on trying to find it. It's just, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. And I keep throwing you off topic. But for those just tuning in, um, we're 43 minutes into the show. We've been talking about bonefish um, and their habitats, mainly the species bonefish and some of their benefits in the Bahamas, you know, the fly fishing industry, even though I've recently found out that fly fishing is not the only way to catch a bonefish. But uh, most primarily any bonefish fishing, that's such a tricky, like, phrase bonefish fishing is catching bone, it's, just, it's just bone fishing bone fishing i thought you were supposed to put fishing back in there because bonefish is one word no. right but no you're we say bone fishing we're going bone fishing you know i'm gonna get hip with this song it's bone fishing <laughs> but yeah so bone fishing is catch and release so that's what keeps it sustainable so let's not take a couple steps back into the past decades where bonefish was I think you said it was a primary source of protein back in the day. So back in the day before we got food imports in from the US, right. yes. So fair, which means we uh there was a, there was once a time where the Bahamas could survive on its own, but I think nowadays that's not we have a lot a lot of work to do. Yeah. And I I feel like I had to be so careful with what I say. I don't want people to come back messaging me like, Did you really say that about the Bahamas? Did you really say we need imports? Nonetheless, luckily we don't have much more. Um, you're getting your slides to show us the life cycle of bonefish. If yeah, I'm trying to get it sent, but I can't find. It's not coming up. Being found. Let me just uh, and then just like uh, to finish off. So yeah. once they um, oh, where is it? Um, once they once they metamorphose into baby bonefish, um, mm -hmm. they start hanging out with schools of of modeled mahara mo most commonly known as narrow shad that's those little fish that you usually see darting around when you go to the beach um and so we found the ratio is about for every 40 mahara there's one bonefish so 
they're using basically this larger school of fish as 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 uh, as cover for for predation from predation. Um, but the, also the interesting thing is, um, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, I can't believe I forgot what the term is. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's called uh, social mimicry. Mm -hmm. um, it's a uh, it's just a way for uh, the the baby bonefish to blend in with the mahara to defend themselves from predators. So they look very similar to Mohara. Yeah. So like their their main predator at that stage is wading birds because they're generally in very shallow waters, a lot of weight, a lot of herons running around, a lot of egrets running around. But then I also have to deal with uh, small sharks and small barracuda as well. Right. Well, bonefish seem to be, dare I say, smart. <laughs> for they doing are extremely that. smart. Yeah. I guess they do that until they get to the size where they can I think you said they travel in doubles and singles. So, do you find that the doubles are like two males, two females, or is it usually like not mating pairs? But you know, what no, they're not. We don't, we don't, we don't know if it's if it's large females or large males or a mixture of the two. We don't know that. Um, but generally, the larger the fish is, the more likely that it's going to be a female. But we've also been finding very, very big males recently. So we, we actually don't know what the what, what the sexes are. Hmm. Interesting. So, and while you are still looking for your power. Oh my God, it's, I don't know why. Because I'm like, I feel like I should be looking at the camera. <laughs> okay. We do have a comment in from Twitter from the Cook Islands. I always love when she comments and watches. They do have a small bonefish fishery in the Cook Islands. And oh man, don't shoot me for saying the name of this island incorrectly. Atutaki. Atutaki, yes. I know Atutaki. Oh, there you go. They used to net them, but only now it's a catch and release fishery here too. The people who used to net them are now the guides and make good income from it. So that's, that's yeah. good. Yeah. Hear. No, there's, oh, what's the guys there? They did a, Sims is a fly fishing company. They did a piece on this one guide. It was like kind of like the first, he was the first one. I can't believe I forgot what his name is. Um, but yeah, he was one of the big bonefish netters and he became a guide. And then people started seeing like he was making an income from a sustainable resource of catching and releasing these fish. Pardon me? Are you talking about a guy from the Cook Islands or just in the Bahamas? Yeah, from the Cook Islands. Oh, wow. That is so E2. great. E2, E2, E2 is his name. I don't know what his last name is, but the guy's, the guide's name is E2. And he's become one of the premier guides in the Cook Islands. Oh, wow. Well, if Teru, if she responds, she's definitely, she is one of my favorite cohort members. I'm sure my whole class knows that. She um, is also a marine ecologist, so she might be able to pop the guy's name in. Um, nonetheless, where are we at now? Are you still looking for the slide or should we just move I'm on? I'm waiting for it to download. Oh, um, <laughs> it's loading. Nonetheless, um, while we are talking about this, I always like to ask my guests to talk a little bit about their experience in the industry in regards to Bahamians who want to get involved and what it takes for them to do that without having to maybe even get a degree. Like, are there some technical things that people can do in regards to bonefish conservation, fly fishing, and other things that you work on? Because you also do tarpon and permits. And yes, we got his name, E2 Davies. I don't know if that's his last name. I'm sorry. They they actually did a they did a short documentary on it called Etu's Bones. So you can look that up on YouTube or look that up on Vimeo or one of them. It's a really good piece. Um, so, as a Bahamian getting into the industry, um, I don't know. I guess it, I would. 
I would say it's semi, it's somewhat difficult. Um, I took a different path just because I went more to the science side mm -hmm. at first, because that's what I was really interested in. Of course, I was very interested in the fishing side as well. So I was able to mix those two very well. Um, but if you want to get into the fishery side um, as like a guide, uh, what you got to do is honestly um, go to a lodge and start from the bottom and work your way up. That's the only way to do it, to be honest. Um, and just because it's good money, I I would advise people not to do it unless they actually are going to love it. Like try, give it a try. But if you, this isn't for you, it's not for you because this you have to work hard in this industry and you have to love it. Um, right. Because right. if you're going to be part of this industry, you have to also protect these fish, protect this habitat for you to be able to make a living. Yeah. And some of the skills that you, you talked about, like when it came to um, tagging of bonefish and things like that, this isn't something someone would necessarily need to go off to school to do if they were to already be maybe a bone fisherman that wants to start helping BTT. Like this is a skill that you guys can also help people learn as well. Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the big that's one of the big ways we were we've been success, yeah, successful in the Bahamas is we work very closely with the guides and the lodges and and the and fishermen. That's the only way to do it. If you just do it on your own, you're not going to be successful, and you're just excluding the main people in the fishery because you have to you have to treat these pe the the lodges, the guides, the fishermen as intricate parts of the ecosystem because they are. You're a part of the ecosystem. I you you can't separate you can't be separate from it because you are essentially a predator within this ecosystem. But we are a predator that wants to be able to conserve these animals and the habitat so that we can continue going after them. I'm, I'm so happy you said that because I think every episode I've been able to put my plug in of the fact that we as humans have evolved, you know, into this thinking that we are separate from nature and the environment. And it's just a separate entity when I feel like one of the things that I want to keep trying to remind people is we are a part of nature. We are not separate from it. And, and like you said, we are in this ecosystem. So we have to do our part in it. And because we are more intellectual and we have this level of intelligence that other species do, don't, other species don't have, you know, we have to do our part in regards to conservation of the animals as well as sustainable consumption. But we do have a question on the screen from Anessa. Does BTT have internships? I guess maybe for college, high school students. Is there any sort of internships you guys do? So the last few, last like three years, I've been offering internships for the first time. Um, I had, a, a, you probably, you know her, Nina, Nina Sanchez. Um, the last couple of years as as my intern. Um, I was supposed to have an intern this past summer, but COVID hit. So <laughs> I wasn't able to get an intern. And what I mainly focus on with my interns is I'm, I basically only take Bahamian interns because I think it's okay. really important to, to have Bahamians who are interested in the field or, or at least who are interested in conservation do this. Um, just because they're, I... I was lucky enough to get some opportunities, but I had to work for it. Like, and there weren't very many available and I wasn't being paid for it. So I think that's really important yeah. just to get more and more Bahamians involved. And I, I usually only take one intern, one intern just because there, there's a lot of moving parts and I can only really deal with one, but I do yeah. too. I always take volunteers out with me. So when I travel to the islands, a lot of times I'll do, I'll like, I'll ask the lodges, I'll ask the guys, or when I go to a school, I was like, Hey, what what couple of kids do you think would gain a lot from this or who's really interested in I'll take them out with me in the field. And that's when you really see like whether they want to be in it or not. I've had it plenty of times where 
like I, the first day we go out, they're having tons of fun. Like they're loving it. Second, and it's long, hard days. Like not going to go soft on you. Yeah. Um, but then the second day they're just like, Oh, we're doing the same thing. And I was like, yep. Yeah, same thing. Mm-hmm. But that's important. And then usually, and then under, uh, like, unfortunately, a lot of them don't, is they're, they're just not into it because they just they probably romanticized it too much like i'd say to get into this field like if you truly love this field but that's what it is it's, right? it's, it's a lot of hard work it's not like putting up with with personalities and whatnot it's just you just work hard and love what you do i think um and i, I always have this conversation when i talk to people in other fields unrelated to conservation you know, it's sad, you know, we're one of the most underpaid professions, we have the biggest impact for the world. And we have the most passion for what we do, which is something that employers often thrive from is because they know that we're passionate about it, right. And, and that's really what it takes to, to just make it in this industry in any form of conservation, you have to really, you have to have that passion, because like you said, there are going to be those long days, like, very very long days in the water out the water in the sun in front of people always being on and, and it, it has to be the passion that drives you and so doing internships i encourage everyone to always try and find internships if you think you're interested in a in a particular industry whether it be conservation or not please 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 find an internship even if it's just shadowing somebody oftentimes a lot of organizations can't afford to pay interns but volunteer be willing to put yourself out there to not earn while you're young, but learn while you're young. So yeah, that's my it's thought. just gain gain experience, building character. And if you don't give it a try, if you don't like it, then that's fine. It's no no big deal. Yeah, and it's something so. you can say you did. Like you can put that under your belt. I tried to be a bone fisherman. I tried to be a conservationist, and and that's how you, like you said, it builds character, and it also helps you to learn who you are as a person. You don't ever really learn who you are or about yourself until you put yourself in an environment where. You don't know anything and no one knows you. That's when you really see who you are as a person. And I feel like we went from conservation to character building, but, <laughs> but it all comes together right at the end. And this is usually this is usually the direction my shows go in. I feel like I always try to say something very philosophical that relates to conservation and the environment. But nonetheless, how are we with your slides? I know we're 56 minutes in. I'm not sure if the prime minister has an announcement today. I feel like every time I have an episode, he does. <laughs> All right, I sent it. Okay, finally loaded. I just sent it to you. So awesome. I will look out for that. In the meantime, if there are any other questions, I know Teru said it's Itu Davy. That's the guy's name. Yes, Itu Davy. That's his last name. Yes. Yeah. All right, let me look for your email so I can pull up your slides and we can have some visual aids. But yeah. In the meantime, in between time, I'm still taking questions. You said you emailed it, right? Yep. It hasn't popped up. Yeah, I sent it to your Gmail. Hmm. It might just be. Oh, there's no premature address today. So that's good to know. Like I said, I always feel like every time, every time I have a show, there is a prime minister address and people are always running off at the end of the hour and your PowerPoint still hasn't come yet. Do you want to try share screen in the meantime while I'm waiting for this to pop up? One more time. Um, yeah, I'll try screen sharing. I don't know why it wasn't coming up. Hmm. Um, Interesting. 
But I will say for people who are still tuning in, some of you who I feel like are my faithful viewers, I appreciate you. And oh, why am I just seeing Lindy's comment? Bonefish is a sweet fish, but a lot of bones he ate it as a child. Oh, Lindy. You know, that's what I'll they deal, do. I'll deal, I'll deal with him later. You do. Oh, I did get, okay, I have your slides unless you, you okay. got running. But yeah, so for all of you who are tuning in, it's about to be so All right, many. hold on, let me see. Is it working now? Um, yes. So we're sharing our screen. So I'm gonna let you see it. Oh, you're. I'm. You're. Are you seeing my screen or your screen? Well, can you see it now? It's us and the screen. Can you see it? Okay, so that's my screen, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. So. Yay! Visual aids. I think I just didn't press the right button. So you can see that big screen now. Yes, juvenile bonefish, and it does. Yeah. Look, oh, it's the eye! Look at the little eye. Yeah. So that is a leptocephalus of a bonefish. Wow. So you see what I mean by it's like a glass eel. It's like a clear noodle-like looking thing. Hmm. And then the picture on your right is basically the progression from the leptocephalus, which is, you can barely see at the top, to a full-blown baby bonefish. Wow. Hmm. Oh, that's and then um, here's what full-blown juvenile bonefish is. And so the two bottom pictures, so you have the picture on your bottom, would be your bottom left. Mm -hmm. is uh, a juvenile bonefish and a mohara looking at it from the top. They look almost identical to one another. So for a predator looking down, they can't tell the difference between a bonefish and a mohara. Not that they care, they just want to eat a fish, but like that's just a way for them to, um, and so that's that process of social mimicry where for them to hide amongst the mohara. And it's the same for them from the side. They look different, but they have the similar, what we call par markings on the side. Right. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And do you, Looks like white bait. I don't know what white bait is. Do you know what white bait is? Yeah, so that's white bait is the same as uh as the mohara, the the shad. Okay, yeah, different different names for the same fish. I love it. Um, okay. Oh, did you? Oh, and you already closed it. I thought you were gonna also show oh, no. the tags. Oh yeah, I can show the tags. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, no worries. And I know you also before we get too far in. I know you mentioned the mangrove restoration stuff. You can also, whenever you're ready to chime in okay. post-Dorian and all that good stuff. Let's see. So if you look at this picture, you can see the tag coming out of the fish, the little white tag, see where my cursor is. And so that's, it's basically, we use a giant hypodermic needle, put the tag in it, insert the tag into the bonefish, write down the numbers, take, take the measurements of the fish and then let them go on their way. And then hopefully an angler will catch that fish and report that tag back to us. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Um, and one of the big projects we are currently working on um, is our mangrove restoration program. Um, so as most people know, um, last September, Hurricane Dorian, the most powerful storm to ever hit the Bahamas, hit Abaco and Grand Bahama. And major devastation, especially on the human side, but on the environmental side, um, especially in the water, like everything's everything seems to be okay, at, at least at the moment from recent um, surveys that I've done on the flats. But the main thing that got impacted from these storms was the mangroves. So we did some um, remote sensing and, uh, and and through satellite imagery worked with uh, guys out of the University of Alabama. 
um, and found that 70% of the mangroves on Grand Bahama uh, were damaged slash destroyed. And then 40% of the mangroves on Abaco were damaged slash destroyed. Um, that is major. Um, I think it's about a hundred, I think it's like 160 square miles of mangroves in total in Northern Bahamas was absolutely obliterated. So basic, yeah. So like Grand Bahama has no mangroves. Abaco lost almost half their mangroves. And so if you look at this picture here, this was in East, this was taken in East San Grand Bahama. It's this place called Brush Key. It was one of my favorite places to go down and fish. Um, that was it before the storm, major like mangroves that were hundreds of years old, maybe even older than that. Um, it was a major bird bird rookery um, for frigate birds. You can see in the picture, there was pelicans, there was white ibis, green herons, um, cormorants, tricolored herons, all types of different species of birds. And this is what it looks like after the storm. Wow. And that's what you see across the majority of Grand Bahama and a good chunk of Abaco. Um, so what we are doing is we are partnering with, um, Bahamas National Trust, let's skip through these, um, Friends of the Environment and MANG. So MANG is a, is a group out of Florida that does a lot of, uh, mangrove restoration work. Some pictures on here, but I, I don't have the updated pictures, but basically what we're doing now is we are starting mangrove nurseries. Um, in Grand Bahama, I'm going to start some in Abaco, and we're going to plant them out. So what we're what we're planning on doing is growing them out to seedling size because uh, research has shown that if you just plant the propagules, the basically the propagules are mangrove seeds. Yeah. Um, there's a 90% chance of mortality, whereas it's significantly higher with planting um, seedling. So at the moment, at the nursery I've built, I have about 12,000 plants. Um, and we're going to be bringing some in from Florida just because we need as many plants as we can get. Um, and we're taking all the proper precautions, bringing these plants over from Florida. Um, and only because there's no mangroves left in Grand Bahama and a lot of most of the mangroves are gone in Abaco. Um, and so the purpose of this is not to replace every mangrove that was lost, but more to kickstart restoration. Because if you were just to leave leave it on its own it's going to take a minimum of 20 years to even for restoration for it to even like restore itself to any point where they can they can start breeding right um sorry propagating not breeding but propagating <laughs> sorry it's okay. I'm, a, I'm a fish person, not a plant person. <laughs> um yeah and so we're going to be focusing on areas where there was previously um adult mangroves that that produced propagules right um and then and then go from there and see what happens so we're about hopefully in november depending on what covid does um to start test planting because we were doing multiple treatments in different areas trying to see what technique will be most effective moving forward with the restoration and we right. want and we're also going to have an education component and we want to get as many community members groups involved as this is in this as possible um what else to say and also we're going to be getting a lot of the bonefish guides involved in this as well because this is their area. They know it better than anywhere else. So we're going to, they're going to be heavily involved in this work. I know, and I guess COVID kind of um, 
I don't even want to say the term makes it better because every time I think about Dorian and just all of it, it's just such a devastating thing. But I guess COVID has kind of also added this, you know, cloak of us really not seeing the impact of this destruction because, you know, bonefish can't go out anymore. Like nobody, tourists aren't coming in. So it almost is like this is, this is such a nice time to start restoration and get things in place before we start, you know, I don't know, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but you know, in my mind, it's like, okay, well, while we don't have a bunch of tourists coming in, this is the best time to kind of sit and really start working on these types of restoration projects. I mean, have we even really assessed in regards to bonefish populations, how this, this devastation has affected them? So it's hard to quantify right. how this has impacted them unless you did like a population study, which you know is very hard and difficult and not necessarily accurate. <laughs> But just from my initial surveys of going to areas um, around Grand Bahama and talking to the guides and the, more talking to the guides in Abaco, just I can't get over there. The bonefish population is is healthy. There are there are plenty of them around, and it's nice that they actually. It's it's sad because a lot of guides are out of work. Like in Grand Bahama, some guides and people who work at these lodges haven't worked in over a year because you take into consideration the the off season. Then we had Dorian. Then we had COVID. So they haven't worked in over a year. So yeah. they are dying to get back to work. Um, but for the fish, from the fish perspective, they're getting a break. <laughs> um, Nature's getting such a break, you know, from, yeah. from we're all locked inside. Yeah. No, so so the bonefish population in the Bahamas is stable and good. Um, it's just we want to get we want to get these mangroves back, at least at least kickstart their restoration because they're so important to protecting our shorelines and also there's they're as important as a nurse as a nursery for a lot of commercial and ecologically important species that are include bonefish so well, um, yeah and I, I feel like we're kind of leaving on a, like a bit of like a a low note you know just again every time i think about dorian and just you know it's it's climate change and i think as a population of the world as global citizens we really need to work on that because the bahamas once again like we have the smallest footprint, but we get the large, like some of the largest impact and it's sad and it's unfortunate and it sucks for us. But I think if we as a people can rise up and just like on a global scale, just put our voices out there. This is what's happening. This is why we need to start being greener and living better, but I don't wanna get on a soapbox right now, but nonetheless, um, do you have any final thoughts about anything that we talked about? Anything you wanna share? Did I um, touch on everything? I think you touched. I think we touched. We touched on a lot. <laughs> so. We even talked about snapper jeepers. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. So anyone watching, if you have any questions for Justin, um, feel free to pop them in. In the meantime, I will briefly talk about what's happening this season or the rest of the season on Siren Sundays. As I have recently graduated um, with my master's and being fun employed, that's a term I stole from one of my flatmates, Devity. Hi, if you're still watching. Um, I have been able to line up just about every Sunday until my birthday, which is November 22nd, which is also a Sunday, ironically enough, with guests. And one of the guests is actually going to be Anessa. She's going to be on the 8th of November talking about mangroves in the coastal environment and some of the work that she's been doing, which she did her master's, which, you know, had genetic work and also some of the work she's doing now. We should be having Mark. And I'm sure if any of my faithful viewers are tuned in, Mark has been on my show so many times he has to be a regular he'll be talking about magical herbs and plants we will have eric carey from the bahamas national trust on the first talking about protected areas and national parks in the bahamas i've been so fortunate that on november 15th we'll have shanique 
talking about conservation initiatives in the Bahamas, and Shanique is the director for the Bahamas program of the Nature Conservancy. Take a break on my birthday, so November 22nd, I want everyone to celebrate just another year of my life, you know? Don't laugh, Justin. BDT should send me a gift for my birthday. Maybe I can get a nice Yeti cup or- I've been begged to be on this show. Yeah, you did not. <laughs> I, anyway, so after that, we will have the Department of Environmental Planning and Protecting, the formerly known as Best Commission. They'll be on the 29th. We'll have Rochelle, Director Newbold, come and speak to us. And my season finale will be December 6th. Like, guys, I really, like, doubled up on this season with episodes. I hope you all can tune in. Check out my website, lashantyjeff.com. It will have all my videos there after the show. I'm also on YouTube. Justin, you have final thoughts for the people, like, all of the people in the world that might even watch this later. I feel like some people probably tune in just because it's you. I've had some people messaging me, like, oh, who's this guy? <laughs> and, uh, I'm like, I'm uh, because you're the second guest I've had that's happened. And I'm not, I don't know if I should call the other guest's name, but they'll remember it too. And it's like, oh gosh, ladies, like, yes, there are men in conservation as well. But yeah, do you have any final thoughts for the audience? Um, for, I, I'm not just going to talk to the Bahamas, but wherever you are in the world. Um, yeah, definitely. If there, if there is a conservation organization near you, or there's a, there's a plant or a habitat or an animal or whatever, Look into it and find out what they're doing and support them as much as you can because it, we need as many people as we can on that front, especially with everything that's going on in the world. Yeah. And also check out check out bonefishtarpentrust.org and you can learn more about what the work that we're doing in the Bahamas and in Florida and the rest of the Caribbean and see how you can get involved. Definitely. And I did put that link in the bio. And as Justin said in the beginning, he is the Bahamas Initiative Manager. And correct me if I'm wrong, the only staff in the Bahamas right now for BTT? Only staff, yes. <laughs> and I don't even I don't even pop up some of these comments coming up, Justin, but you clearly you clearly have some fans and I Oh my god, that's my I, cousin. What? <laughs> I am so surprised. That's my cousin. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Like you really you got some fans. I think you brought your fan club with me to this show. We have, you know. <laughs> I can't. I can't. If you guys want to find Justin, he's tagged in my post. Flatsbum73 on Instagram. But to be fair, the fish are the stars of all his posts. And I almost kind of thought about pulling up just your like page to show how every single picture you have is you with shades and a fish. And I'm like, Justin, I can't even find a picture of you to put on my flyer because it's just you and fish in the screen. I like I like fish. <laughs> I like fish. That's that's a good way to say it, but <laughs> nonetheless, oh, thank you. Great episode. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, as I always like to say, <laughs> please, everyone out there in the world, um, especially the Bahamas, but especially the world, we are all not separated by water. It's what connects us. So please, please, please keep our oceans clean, green, and pristine, or clean blue and pristine. Ocean's blue. Hmm. I gotta work on a new tagline. <laughs> Justin's just there, like, oh my gosh. I know you haven't had to deal with this in so long. I haven't seen you in forever. I know, no, right? The show is over. <laughs> the show is over. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Say bye to the people, Justin, from all around bye, the world. Bye, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Definitely.